You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on issues of human rights and humanitarian law. My name is Jemima Watkins, and we are broadcasting from the Ralph Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. In 2016, a UN study found that more than 40 million people around the world were victims of modern slavery. To find out more about this, we will be talking to Emila Bula, who is the UN Special Rapporteur for Contemporary Forms of Slavery, Its Causes and Consequences. Welcome. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. Could you please explain what contemporary slavery consists of? The biggest challenge with contemporary forms of slavery is that there is no clear or specific legal definition. It's really an umbrella term that refers to a number of practices and institutions that are based on coerced labor and lack of freedom. It includes what the 1926 Slavery Convention says about slavery as the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership are exercised. Now we know that there is no longer any legal right to ownership. So we really talk about a contemporary situation which in the 1956 supplementary condition is linked to a number of practices which are similar to slavery. So this includes um, practices and institutions like debt bondage, serfdom, forced and servile marriage, child slavery, forced labor, domestic servitude, forced prostitution. And um, these are also called servitudes. But basically, there's a difference between the legal definition under the international conventions and what is in practice the manifestations of these different forms of extreme labor exploitation. I see. So how would you say that historical conceptions of slavery are different to the current ones? Is it that legal right to ownership that's the real difference? Yes, you're right. That's primarily the big difference. We um, traditionally, uh, our laws, international law, uh, be obviously before the advent of the UN and before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, recognized that it was legal to own and trade in human beings as property. But of course, in our world today and over the last few years and since the formation of the League of Nations, which signed the 1926 anti-slavery convention, ownership and trade, the slave trade, trading in human beings is illegal in every country in the world. So we really find that although in law there is no slavery, these practices continue to exist um, and, and they manifest in different ways. Um, they also exist, for instance, where traditional and historical forms of chattel slavery has, have uh, prevailed, say, in countries in West Africa, where we talk about vestiges of slavery existing, which means that people in those countries, because they come from slave heritage or descendants of slaves, are still discriminated against and victimized based on that status or origin. Why do you think that it's important that we make a difference between referring to someone as a slave versus referring to someone as an enslaved person? I think that slavery is 
a fundamental denial of human dignity. So we have to use terminology that is consistent with retaining human dignity. And I have difficulty with the term slave because it creates stigmatization, it perpetuates the vulnerability and the marginalization of a person. So I would prefer to use the term a victim of slavery or survivor of slavery. Because also, you know, the term enslavement has a very specific meaning under the Rome Statute, where it's a criminal offense. Um, and it's a crime against humanity in certain instances. So it talks, enslavement refers essentially to a collective practice. But slavery as an institution traps people both at an individual level, a community level, and a collective level. So referring to enslavement, I think, is problematic. And enslavement also refers to the act of enslaving, which is a criminal offense, whereas slavery as an institution or practice, or if we say someone is a victim of slavery, it covers also the fact that slavery is a violation of labor rights, it's a violation of civil rights, it's a violation of human rights, it's a violation of humanitarian law, and it gives rise to collective responsibility on the parts of states to make sure that uh, there is administrative justice and there are increased labor inspections and that the labor market is regulated. So it's not just a criminal justice issue, which is what the term enslavement would convey in a technical legal sense. Would you say that certain groups are disproportionately affected by contemporary forms of slavery? Most definitely. I think that there's a lot of research to indicate that women as a group are particularly affected, and that would include um, young women, adolescent women, and also children. Um, the ILO 2017 Global Estimates of Modern Slavery indicate that women and girls accounted for 71% of victims of contemporary forms of slavery. And there are also a number of indicators that people who are um, in conflict situations, who are internally displaced, migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, people from indigenous communities, people from specific castes, so caste-affected groups, uh, specific religious groups um, are particularly vulnerable. We see, for instance, the Rohingya in Myanmar, particularly vulnerable to human trafficking, smuggling, to forced labor, displacement, and basically being thrown out of their, their home country, which increases their vulnerability. 71% is a massive number. What do you think causes women and girls to be disproportionately affected by contemporary slavery? In my view, they mainly are structural and systemic factors. So the fact that patriarchy is very much a function of modern society, and it means that their power relations um, exercised in communities, families, and in the state, which continue to oppress women. Um, so women are discriminated against, gender inequality still prevails. There's still cultural and traditional norms which prescribed what women should do, how girls should behave, whether they have access to schooling or not. 
And those create systems in which women are still treated as inferior and are oppressed and subjugated. And it creates a volatile breeding ground for exploitation because when you are already vulnerable because of systems that operate and structures that operate in your society, your vulnerability is perpetuated when you struggle to find a job, when you are not able to complete schooling, uh, when you are kept home and subjected to a forced marriage, um, and where you may be sent away to work in domestic work in a foreign country to earn income for your family, or you may be married off for the honor of your family and you find that you are basically um, being sent into forced prostitution or to do domestic servitude for the family that you are married into. So women and girls are definitely more vulnerable. It's incredible. There's just so much, there's so much research being done now. And there's so many uh, consequences for women and girls that are being identified because of the work being done by international organizations. Um, that there's more and more research and, and it all indicates that, that it's not just traditionally the sexual exploitation that women are subjected to, that increasingly women are being forced um, into contemporary forms of slavery as domestic servants or as working in the garment and apparel industries for international brands, for example. You know, so, uh, or women are involved in the electronics industry because of uh, the fact that traditionally women are considered to be better suited to be doing manual work that requires intricate stitching or putting together um, electronic components. So it's all those stereotypes about women that feed into determining where they end up in society and how their opportunities are restricted. And that creates vulnerability to modern slavery. Thank you for listening to the Ra Wallenberg Institute's podcast on human rights. If you would like to hear more from us, like us on Facebook. You speak about slavery in the supply chain with the electronics company and the international brands. How do you think that those violations can be identified and remedied more effectively? That's a very good question because a lot of work has been done recently. Um, there is state-imposed forced labor in some countries, but forced labor and other contemporary forms of slavery like bonded labor in global supply chains have, over the last few years, become of increasing concern in this global economy that that we operate in. Because workers are able to be moved as commodities and because corporations themselves can move. So a global corporation registered in um, its domicile, say in North America or Europe can operate in Vietnam, in Thailand, in um, uh, Bangladesh and run different enterprises producing products, which can then be sold on the global market. So that of the, those forms of, um, uh, of slavery, of forced labor in supply chains, have increasingly come under scrutiny. 
on the one hand, we do have the UN guiding principles, which present a number of very clear guidelines to business as to how they can ensure that their supply chains are free of forced labor, how they can conduct due diligence over their business operations to ensure that there are no human rights violations, and how business should essentially respect um, all human rights obligations. So there's an increasing emphasis on what business should be doing. We also see now there's talk um, in the UN of a binding treaty where governments will be um, legally bound if they signed this treaty and the treaty is passed to pass laws that regulate business conduct and make it compulsory for business to report on the steps that they're taking to end violations, human rights violations in their supply chains. And we also have the emergence of legislation that promotes transparency. For instance, we have two significant pieces of legislation in the last few years, the UK's Modern Slavery Act and um, most recently Australia's Modern Slavery Act, which places legal obligations on businesses, on domestic businesses um, over a certain amount of turnover to comply with legislation and report on what they're doing to identify and to end contemporary forms of slavery in their supply chains. So there's a lot being done and a lot more still needs to be done to increase corporate accountability, particularly where businesses operate and have impacts extraterritorially. But uh, there already is a firm foundation where global partnerships as well are being formed with businesses linking to trade unions, work organizations, consumer rights organizations, um, mm -hmm. ethical recruitment organizations to ensure that there's a, a global emphasis on eradicating all forms of slavery from supply chains. For those countries that don't already have legislation to prevent contemporary forms of slavery, what do you think will motivate businesses to prevent such supply chain violations? Well, there already is motivation in the form of their international legal commitments, which they would have signed. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, most countries um, in the world have um, signed the International Labour Organization Convention 29 on forced labor and some of the other fundamental conventions. But obviously, you know, that remains um, a, a situation of voluntary compliance and then reporting to the ILO and to treaty bodies and to UN mechanisms. Uh, what should motivate countries is really the link between uh, development and ending contemporary forms of slavery, and also ensuring that they carry forward into their domestic legislation, their international human rights compliance, compliance that they've committed to internationally, basically. So also we need countries to see that it's not just the right thing to do to end contemporary forms of slavery because they've committed to UN and ILO instruments and they've made those part of their domestic law. They've got to enforce their laws properly. They've got to ensure uh, that trade unions have rights to operate, that workers have freedom of association, that labor inspectors are able to go out to workplaces to inspect and identify and impose penalties where there are violations 
of uh, those labor rights and international human rights. They also have to make sure that they see how detrimental exploitation and slavery is to development of a country. There um, are a number of studies done, for instance, which indicate how much is lost to domestic economies because of labor exploitation and, of course, because of extreme forms of labor exploitation like contemporary forms of slavery. So the ILO, for instance, in um, its study on the economics of uh, profit and poverty indicated that 150 billion a year was lost to the global economy because of illegal employment and because of uh, exploitation in the form of forced labor. This also brings in the sustainable development goals because the goals that have been agreed to by all member states in 2015 specifically contain goal eight, which is a goal on promoting decent work, full and productive employment, and sustainable and inclusive development. And one of the targets under that goal is ending contemporary forms of slavery, human trafficking, and forced labor, and also ending child labor by 2025. So there are a number of commitments, but states need to be held more accountable through international mechanisms and held more accountable domestically by their own um, people, by their own civil society organizations. And they also have to make sure that corporates who operate in their countries through global supply chains are held accountable for complying with the UN guiding principles and for respecting human rights and respecting um, the laws of the country. So we talked about um, women and girls being disproportionately affected. Do you think you could talk more about how contemporary forms of slavery are fueled by intersecting forms of oppression and inequalities? Yes, it's very important because we find that generally the, the most marginalized, most vulnerable individuals and communities end up being victims of slavery. And these are individuals and communities who come from situations in which there is endemic poverty, so they would, for instance, migrate to escape from poverty to seek better economic opportunities. They, they face poverty, inequality, discrimination. Also, there may be people who are displaced because of conflict, because of climate change. So they are vulnerable already because of these multiple um, external factors that they face, but they also face intersecting forms of inequalities based on their race, on their ethnicity, their social origin, their nationality, on the basis of age, gender, religion, whether they come from rural areas or urban areas. Indigenous communities are also more vulnerable. Migrants, refugees, asylum seekers are more vulnerable. Young people, especially women, are more vulnerable and also caste-affected communities are more vulnerable. So we find, for instance, in some of the work I've done in West Africa, um, where there are caste-affected communities of girls who are more vulnerable to being sent to uh, Nigeria from Niger um, as part of human trafficking syndicates or being um, forced to marry and are then being forced into prostitution and... Um, commercial sexual exploitation and domestic servitude. So their vulnerability 
to being trapped in different contemporary forms of slavery is increased by these intersecting factors that impact on their ability to earn a decent living and to earn an economic livelihood. And they then fall prey to more easily to criminal networks, human trafficking networks, human smugglers, and they end up in forced labor situations because they don't have the economic fallback mechanisms in families to push back against poverty or economic shocks. And the only alternative then is to, to leave, to try to find employment in another country in order to be able to help the family. So someone from Nigeria may be sent to a legitimate job, say in Italy, but she may find herself in a brothel instead of working um, in a restaurant or a hotel. So a number of these intersecting interpersonal factors increase vulnerability to slavery. And how do you think that countries who have colonial pasts, you mentioned the UK, can deal with contemporary forms of slavery without upholding post-colonial discourses? Right, that's a very critical issue because you raise a key point about uh, the fact that there's also a bigger obligation, a stronger duty on countries that have a colonial past to be seen to be doing the right thing and to actually do the right thing to redress the disadvantages that have been inherited as a result of that past. So you see, for instance, in the UK and other Commonwealth countries, um, working together, for instance, with the Commonwealth Human Rights Institute, looking specifically at how they can remedy these disadvantages and prevent the continued exploitation of people, either because of colonial history, where there's a continuing, where there are continuing forms of discrimination, or else looking at mechanisms for redressing past disadvantage. So the UK has, despite the fact that it's been criticized so severely at a political level, the UK has actually done a great deal to ensure that its colonial past is eradicated. In my view, the passing of the Modern Slavery Act in 2015 was a key step to indicate to the global community that there are things that we can do and there are things that can help to redress some of the damage we've caused in the past. And for me, what's critical is if you read some of the reports about how as a result of the Modern Slavery Act, uh, there has been increased access to refugees and migrants, um, victims of uh, domestic servitude in diplomatic households, for instance, uh, to access to justice under the Modern Slavery Act, how there's been increasing prosecutions, and how um, there's increasing steps and training being done to, for first-line officials, law enforcement officials, to be able to more effectively identify victims of slavery. Also, the ending of the tied domestic workers' visa for diplomatic households is one of the examples of making sure that vulnerability to modern slavery is reduced the obligations on business to uh, ensure uh, there's transparency in their supply chains and in all their business operations, and to ensure that they do annual reports on the steps that they're taking to end contemporary forms of slavery is also another key example. So it shows that one of the key mechanisms to prevent 
um, extreme forms of exploitation based on these um, institutions that treat human beings like property to be sold and traded is having strong human rights and labor laws which domesticate international commitments and having strong and effective law uh, enforcement, having strong trade unions, worker organizations. In the UK, for instance, through the Ethical Trading Initiative, business stakeholders played a key role in formulating the legislation. And, um, and that's, that's a key indicator of good progress and a good preventative mechanism. Also, what is important is under Kevin Highland, the former anti-slavery commissioner, was that there was an independent institution having oversight of compliance with the legislation. There's increasing advocacy, increasing awareness in society. And through increasing awareness, we would have increasing reporting. And, um, and, and these all create a system in which there's more transparency, more accountability, ordinary people on the street are more vigilant. People who might themselves fall prey to slavery are more aware of their rights. And there are options for um, ensuring that they, people can access decent work and productive employment opportunities. There's job creation. And where there are human and labor rights violations, there are also effective remedies. So there's not a perfect system anywhere, I would say. Um, the Australian legislation is um, an advance on the UK's Modern Slavery Act, but there's also historically legislation in other countries like the California Transparency Act, in Brazil, the Dirty List, in France and in the Netherlands, regulations relating to parliamentary disclosures around child labor, for instance. So we're seeing an increasing awareness and a, an increasing global commitment to prevention measures because prevention and protection are two of the key components of state, what the state is responsible for, including prosecution and remedies. And those all feed into creating a global system where we are effectively able to take steps, proactive steps to ensure that we prevent this growing trade in human beings and we finally are able to put a stop to um, these extreme forms of exploitation and hopefully that in the future we will achieve all the sustainable development goals not only goal eight and have productive thriving societies where every human being has their inherent human dignity protected by the law and protected under the law and also reinforced by um, international mechanisms. I think that's a positive note to end on. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jemima. I've so enjoyed talking to you and I'm, I'm so excited that RWI has taken an interest in my mandate and in the work that I've been doing. And I'm really looking forward to being able to, to contribute more to this global struggle to end all contemporary forms of slavery. That was Amila Bula. UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Slavery, Its Causes and Consequences. This has been on human rights. For more information about the Ralph Wallerberg Institute's work, head to our website at www.rwi.lu.se. Thank you for listening. <laughs>